Hey Rejects, I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome back to Rejected Central. Now, before we begin, you know, normally we have our little usual banter here, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm cutting it off right now. I want to put Brent on the spot immediately uh, uh-oh. because we like to do that to other people. And and, I, and it turns out from the Snoop episode, I love to do it to you as well. But I, uh, you know, Brent, uh, Brent has a book coming out. Um, and I, do, I, was, I do words. Yeah. He, uh, Brent is a professional wordsmith. <laughs> and uh, he, has a, he has a work coming out uh, in February. February 27th, yes. Um, thank you, I guess, for putting me on the spot. Uh, Unthinkable is my first thriller. It's coming out. It's a book about a veteran who's going through some tough times and has some tough choices to make in a world that's kind of gone sideways. Uh, it's available now for pre-order, so thank you in advance for doing that. The pre-order tells the almighty algorithm that I'm worth publishing and sends a message to my publisher that uh, people like me, which is really good. Um, no, I'm excited. It's coming out late February. February 27th is the release date. And then if you're here in Hamilton on March 20th, I'm having a big launch party um, at the Staircase Theater. Yeah, looking forward to it. Should be fun. Yeah, it's great. Um, and, uh, you know, I often say that uh, you're prolific. I can tell it must be my birthday coming soon because you seem to release a book around my birthday almost every year. It's remarkable your release your release dates are shockingly I, I, consistent. I, I do this for you. I knew it. Yeah, we it's a big it. thing. You know, we talk about conspiracy, we joke about them that pe- conspiracy people are crazy. Mm. No, I'm actually a conspiracy person and so are all of my publishers. <laughs> 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 all right, enough about me. Why don't we get back to the episode? Sound good? <laughs> Sounds good. Branding is one of those terms that gets the treatment these days. Of course, we're all aware of branding in a macro sense. There's a good reason we instantly recognize the golden arches, that ubiquitous athletic swoosh, and that little online bird that some idiot wants to replace with an X. But branding reaches us at the micro level as well. We're bombarded online and in real life by constant pressure to buy the right brand, consume the right thing, build our personal brand, and put ourselves out there, show our best lives, whatever that means. So it's understandable, I think, that there's a good amount of suspicion that branding has become a bit all-consuming, too habitual, too polished, too shallow to have any real meaning. However, it's unavoidable, and in many ways, essential to the world we find ourselves in. My brother Dennis, and yes, we share the same long last name, has been working in and with branding for a long time. Though the term has been around for millennia, and corporate identity for a couple hundred years at least, Dennis has been involved for as long as branding has been in what I call our popular consciousness, starting with the tech boom and rise of the internet in the mid-1990s. From working as a product evangelist for Corel, to managing his local BIA and running his own consulting firm Brandvelope, he's learned a few things about why brands work, or don't. And he's here today to talk about why ideas in general get rejected or accepted. Dennis, welcome to Rejected Central. Hey, my brother. Uh, yeah, good to uh, good to hear you. Good to see you, and good to be part of this uh, rejected central um, project. I'm I'm glad you accepted me. It's true. I've had a few guests comment on the uh, and ask me if have you actually rejected anyone. 
<laughs> I don't answer. No, you'll question. let anybody on. Clearly, top secret. Nope, nope. I never. I'm I never, here, so you know. You can't know what's in the sauce. Uh, we, for, we'd like to ask our guests to begin their visit with a personal rejection story. And as you and I were chatting in the lead up to today, you mentioned that the term reject or rejection isn't just an idea to you, that that word actually got thrown at you when you were younger, didn't it? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in the 1970s and early 80s, and uh, the term reject was one of those terms that was uh, uh, gaining kind of popular uh, playground currency at the time. And it was just one of these words that was thrown around as like, man, you're such a reject. You're a reject. You're a reject. So it wasn't reject. It was reject. And it was a very pointed, pointed uh, uh, phrase that was used to other people to 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 say that you're you're not one of us. You're not part of the tribe. You're a reject. Um, and, uh, I was, uh, a loud, compulsively creative kid. Uh, we moved around a lot as kids. Uh, uh, we were foreign service brats. So, uh, I was born in Ottawa, but we moved to, you know, four different places before I started elementary school. Um, so I always felt like an outsider and, uh, kids in the playground, uh, didn't help out when they were, uh, when they were othering, uh, uh, kids who were different kids who took a different approach, kids who had different interests, uh, kids who, yeah. Um, who hadn't been there the quite... whole time that you, that they had been there. Cause I, I can relate very well to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they'd been learning how to skate and play hockey. I had no clue when we came home from the States, for example, uh, uh, I, I just was terrible at those things. Uh, they'd been learning French when I came in grade seven. Uh, they'd already been learning French for four years and I'd been in the United States. And so, you know, I was kind of stuck at the back of the line, but also just like <laughs> I, as a really, really, really kind of uh, easily distractible kid uh, with clinical ADHD, uh, lots of nerdy countercultural obsessions with things like Dungeons and Dragons and uh, theater and art and crazy nerdy obsessions. Uh, you know, like I, 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 I didn't have a good chance of fitting in to start with. Uh, but uh, also being that sort of outsider was uh, was yeah, it was it was it was tricky. It was difficult, but not in any way an insurmountable obstacle and i think uh i owe a lot of um the the good things that i've been able to do and the the perspective that i've been able to bring to the world where rejection was the was the was the default setting now of course i am also you know white cisgendered male uh you know i i have a lot of privileges so i don't want to pretend that i have overcome more obstacles than anyone else and uh uh you know those things are always there operating in the background, but at the same time, uh, you, you, you feel most that which is closest to you and that sense of, of being the other, being the outsider. Um, I got used, used to being different, thinking different and approaching things in a different way. Continuing in the theme of this evolution, at one point you found yourself at the rising tech company Corel. Um, mm -hmm. After university, yep. after again, and, and in university, you were very focused on the arts and sure. and moving from that kind of 
milieu, to use a fancy schmancy word. But moving from that kind of environment to a corporate tech environment like Corel, it occurs to me as I'm looking over that history to say that had to be quite instrumental as well. You started as a tech writer, you moved on to being, which might be the best job title in the history of job titles, product evangelist. Um, <laughs> to Preach it, brother. Yeah, what are the, prog- the programs were called Draw and Paint Shop? Corel Draw right. was that the, one I remembered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Corel Photo Paint. Photo uh, Paint. Also, that's it. Yeah. Well, let, let me back up a little bit from that too, because the time frame that we're talking about is I graduated from university, uh, Redeemer, same place that you went, uh, in 1995. Uh, I worked at Redeemer um, uh, uh, in their community relations department for a couple of years. And I got that job because I was the only one in the building who knew how to do uh, uh, computerized graphic design. I'd, I'd been the editor of the school newspaper and had moved them from paste up artboards to digital design and uh, and layout. The, the school kind of didn't have anyone uh, available to do that work. And so they hired me for a couple of years. And I essentially ended up running the communications uh, publication shop learning how to use a Macintosh computer, learning a lot of the different software, as well as starting to use this crazy new product on the PC called Corel Draw. And um, I just became a de facto expert in my environment, uh, just knowing more than the people around me is what I mean by de facto, not actually an expert, uh, by using the product. And then when I left Redeemer, uh, I it was fortuitous. I ran into someone who worked at Corel who happened to be on the technical writing team, an old friend. And her problem was that she had a bunch of people who had technical writing diplomas from college, but none of them knew how to use the software. And so I came in as someone who had an English degree and therefore technically I could write and I, I knew how to put a, put a sentence together, but I was coming from the other side. I really like the connection between using the product and your ability to write about it though. And that was something really interesting to her. Yeah, well, absolutely. Because I was the customer. I was the people that they as a company were trying to inform, trying to market to, trying to impress with this product. I was a person sitting in a professional environment where I had to use this software every day where I was learning to use it. And so I could bring back to her team, you know, this is why people use this feature. You can describe how to use it in terms of click this, click this, click this. But I can tell you, well, this is why you want to have color management uh, 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 as part of your 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 process because you've got to go to the press and you've got to get color separations done by a separation bureau. Like all of those types of things were 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 things that I could bring to them and say, you know, this is how that works. Well, and anticipating why people would want that too. Like, what a exactly. different approach to just the the technical writing aspect of it. Right. And then while I was at at, at at Corel, um, as a as sort of this technical writer, I started to make good relationships within the product development team because I had to go to them to figure out, well, what's the next feature? What are you going to do? But as that kind of outsider who had used the software, um, they started asking me to, you know, come to meetings and tell them, you know, hey, we're trying to do this. What do you think? Um, and I kind of became like an internal consultant uh, between the technical writing team and the product development team. 
And then a position came open on, it was called the product specialist team at the time. Uh, product evangelist was a term that was quite often thrown around as well. I guess my technical title was senior product specialist. I've uh, only ever I known you left. as the evangelist. <laughs> well, yeah. And that was, uh, that was how I was sort of introduced most of the time was that I was the product evangelist. So, so from technical writing and being intensely internal to the company and being like locked in the building, basically when we were doing a release, I was suddenly being sent all around the world uh quite literally to australia to the middle east to you know all across the united states and europe um uh and i was i was the guy at a trade show who would stand up on stage and demonstrate the software uh whenever corel wanted to impress a convention whenever they wanted to make nice with a corporate partner i would go in with my mouse and my laptop there were things called user groups back there where, you know, you'd go down to Texas and there'd be a thousand people packed into a high school auditorium cheering software fans. Like it was crazy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Or right? cheering yeah. on things like, like WordPerfect, moment of nostalgia for that Corel yeah. product that everybody knew, right? You were in this niche. Right. Yeah, I didn't mention WordPerfect earlier, but yeah, that was um, between the time I got hired and the time I started, Corel announced that they had bought WordPerfect that was the precursor to Word. Uh, and, uh, and by the time I started at Corel, I was also traveling the world, demonstrating word perfect and <laughs> trying to convince people that uh, this new thing, word wasn't such a great thing. Word perfect was the thing you should be driving. Uh, I'm less enthusiastic about that part of it because the graphics really were the things that thing that, 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 that got me going and that really got me out there. And, you know, like it, it at 20, between the age of 26 and 29, I was being asked to, uh, you know, speak to the press in, you know, Italy and 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 Copenhagen uh, about these products. I was being thrown into Disney and being asked to convince Disney to start adopting some of our technology. I was going to Compaq and Hewlett Packard. Well, um, and and you speaking, know. you packed me in your yeah. Corel suitcase uh, yeah. to San Francisco, <laughs> uh, right. and we ended up. Um, to a little tiny company in Cupertino called Apple. And yeah. while we were there, of course, they were running their Think Different campaign, which has become quite iconic. But in addition to that campaign being iconic, but in addition to it being iconic, you've also spoken of it as being quite formative. I mean, it was exciting. It was fun. I got freebies. Hey, who, who doesn't <laughs> love a good bit of swag? But you you really, really twigged onto something there, didn't you? Yeah, no, that was a that was a real um, formative moment for me in my thinking and in in my career. My masters at Corel basically said, "Oh, oh, oh, you're going on holiday at the <laughs> worst time." At That's nice. Uh, we've got this massive uh, conference in San Francisco where uh, Steve Jobs is going to be launching this brand new thing. And we hear there's lots of excitement about it. We need somebody there to do our presentations and to man the booth and to be the the spokesperson. So uh, Steve Jobs, uh, he had been rejected from uh, Apple uh, I, I, like several years before. He had founded the company, had really been the inspiration and the vision for the company. He'd been fired and uh, went off and did some inconsequential things like founding Disney or founding Pixar, uh, a little and, company uh, called Pixar, right? And yeah. and had phenomenal success in a couple of other spaces. Apple lost its way. It 
it it started losing market share drastically. It really was looking like the company was going to die. And then they had uh, had a bit of an internal revolution, had hired Steve Jobs back to bring them back to their roots and to 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 reorient them. And this point was one year after he had come back and uh, he had gone from, you know, this taken them from this money losing company to having profitable quarters, three quarters in a row. Earlier that summer, he had uh, unveiled this new product called the iMac that was going to be the best thing ever. Uh, and everybody had sort of seen that and it was generating a lot of buzz. But at that conference in the next room, uh, Steve Jobs was unveiling what would become uh, the turnaround product for Apple, which was that that green Bondi blue looking yes, right mean, yeah. thing. And uh, they had the 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 Apple booth. Everything was under uh, was under wraps uh, while he was doing his uh, his presentation. They actually had sheets over all of the different displays and everything. And when he wrapped up that presentation, they unveiled everything. And I saw all of the folks coming out of that room and onto the trade show floor. And for me, one of the most uh, uh, amazing and impactful things was that the people coming out of that room where Steve Jobs had just come down from the mountain and said, this is the new product strategy. This is the brand new consumer product, the iMac. Uh, you can go get it and touch it and play with it right now. People coming out of that room were were, were crying. There were tears coming down people's faces these were the iMac. Uh, uh, these were these were graphic designers. It was a graphic design conference, and they felt like they had been abandoned by this company that they believed in, uh, Apple. And now this thing was coming along that they felt was going to change their life and bring them back into prominence. But also, that was cool. That was different. That was something. Uh, they could show off to their friends and tell their friends about. It was something that was really giving them a new story to tell. So we have people crying on a trade show floor, which is a pretty incredible image, to be honest. Uh, yeah. I, I guess it did sort of foreshadow a lot of that emotional connection that people would make with Apple and Steve Jobs and his ability to sort of unveil that next thing that just brought people into that sort of almost mystical place of tech, which is just unbelievable in many ways. What it highlighted, that idea that people could get emotional about microchips, the idea that people could care so much about a thing that sits on your desktop and helps you do things. Uh, I think that's that was the aha moment for me, was that um, in my work at Corel and in my future work as a brand strategist, finding a way to connect with people emotionally, tribally, at a deeper level was the thing that I, I really wanted to start sort of thinking about and exploring. And not just the, the, the people that were in that room. Uh, Steve Jobs also talked in his keynote that day about the new spirit at Apple. Uh, they'd gone, I said, from a, being a money losing, but also a people losing organization uh, before that to being a place where the employees and the people that were on the trade show floor were also excited, motivated, emotional, and feeling like they were part of something important. And the Think Different campaign, you remember those giant posters all over the walls with Gandhi and Picasso and, uh, you know, um, all of these sort of uh, creatives. We actually were approached on the trade show floor by someone from Apple 
I found out later uh, one of the reasons uh, they were approaching us was because they were trying to woo my boss uh, or one of my uh, one of my uh, product managers uh, to from Corel. Uh, he later went to become an executive at Apple and uh, has had a very successful career there. Uh, but um, but but they had seen something that I had presented in my uh, in my in my presentation and uh, and and John the the product manager had been. Uh, wowing them with this new 3D VR feature that we had built in and no one else had. And they said, you've got to come to Apple headquarters and you've got to show this to our bosses. And uh, John came to me and said, uh, are you willing to stretch your, your your time in San Francisco for another couple of days? Because we really have to go to Cupertino. We have to go to, to, to Apple headquarters. And the spirit of that place and the enthusiasm of all the people there running around with sheafs of you know think different posters and um you know the 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 cafeteria the pride they took in showing us all of the different stuff and then that that meeting where everyone was looking for a way to sort of uh build this think different uh ethos into what they were doing it was just a little software package they were looking to partner with at that time and we were you know, a vendor going to visit Cupertino, but you could really taste and feel that that sort of spirit and that enthusiasm that was coming off them. What takeaways do you have from that, Dennis? Like what things did you bring from Cupertino to the beyond when you started your own consulting business? Because after a while you did leave Corel to do this thing on your own. Yeah, so um, customers matter. Uh if you are trying to sell something, if you are trying to promote something, if you're trying to launch something new, if you've got a new book for the world or you've got a new product for the world or an important you know, vaccination program that you're trying to sell to the world, whatever it is, if you've got something that's important that people need to know about, um, my practice as a consultant was to try to break down uh, rejecting rejection into four different psychological customer bundles. We as people, when we encounter a new thing, uh, our brains and the four different parts of our brains are doing four different things simultaneously. And any one of those things could lead to the immediate rejection uh, or at the very least a sense of suspicion and setting up sort of negative walls to accepting that new thing. Um, and the four things that uh, Steve Jobs absolutely nailed in that presentation. And the four things that I tried to get my customers to work through uh, when they were launching new things and developing their logos, developing their branding, their messaging, their positioning, but even more importantly, making promises to their customer that they would then have to live on, uh, live up to later on. The first one, uh, the first two actually are, are kind of related to each other and that's comfort versus adventure. And, um, one is the more conservative impulse. One is the more liberal, if you will, impulse. And um, I call it the good jazz proposition. And and it goes back to, uh, I once was at a jazz concert and uh, uh, it was amazing. It was a really good jazz concert. And uh, my friends and I were trying to figure out what, what, what made that good? What made that a really transformative experience? And somebody at the next table who was a jazz fan leaned over and said, that's good jazz. And we said, yeah, yeah, it's good jazz. And he said, no, 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 that's good jazz. And we said, no, no, we get it. It's good jazz. He said, no, no, that's good jazz. Good jazz is half what you came to hear and paid your ticket for. 
and it's half what you never expected. And that playoff between getting what you thought you were paying your ticket for and being taken somewhere new is that first level. So the conservative part of our brain uh, resists things that make us feel uncomfortable, that weird us out. So if it was all crazy improvisation and it was all just sort of, if it was all just too weird, most people are going to reject that. So you got to start off by by gaining somebody's acceptance, by showing them that you understand and you accept the way they see the world and that you're providing them with a sense that this is not something crazy, new, or, or radical. Uh, it still meets your needs. And when Steve Jobs does that presentation, and I, 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 I don't know if you can share links about this stuff. Oh, but sure. It, it really, yeah, I can put it in the show notes. It's, it's a half hour watch, but it really is a case study in trying to uh, frame something new for people in a way that they're going to accept. And the first thing that he does is he basically says, uh, uh, you know, all the stuff that you loved about Macintosh before, uh, it's not just back, but we are building on the foundation of those early principles. Um, it does all the stuff that you want it to do, but even better, we've radically simplified our product line and we've, We've 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 focused on the four different areas that you care about, and he maps those out, and he says we're going to provide products in this area, this area, this area, and this area, and it just like lays it out, and it like, as a user that just gives you this sense of ah great, but the second area is that you don't want to stay in the comfort if you're trying to sell someone new or trying to convince them to do something new, you've got to take them and say we understand where you're at and we want it we we know what you want. You're going to get that. Absolutely. But you didn't know you wanted all these other things and we're going to take you into this new think different direction. And that's where not just having a boring looking computer, but having it be beautiful and designed and 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 uh, being a, a color that they'd never seen before uh, was that next step to say, this thing we're putting on your desktop is is not just going to be something that does everything you you need it to. And by the way, it will and faster and better. And we've got all the specs to prove that. It's also going to sit there on your desktop and be a statement about who you are, that you think different, that you buy into this belief that we're framing for 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 for, for the world and we're demonstrating it. All right. So we have two areas. We have comfort, conservative side of your brain. We have the Bondi Blue in the iMac. It's a little bit crazy. It makes you feel a little, wow, this is unreal. It's cool. It's different. and it's But it's still doing everything that they want you to do. Adventure is the part of it that's the Bondi Blue, the mm -hmm. new area. The one yeah. that if they had just showed a computer in Bondi Blue, maybe not great. But when they pair it with all of the stuff that they know that their customer really wants this machine to do, it works and meets those first two areas. What are the, yeah, exactly. what are the last? Yeah. You mentioned you had four. So you, what For are the sure. third yeah, and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The third thing is uh, tribal or social. Um, and that is me as a customer looking at this new thing. Uh, I need a new computer. This computer is amazing and different and uh, uh, will do all kinds of stuff that I've, I've never even thought I could do with a computer. But the third thing is, how is this going to make me look to, say, my boss when I have to say, I need a new computer and this is the one that I want? 
uh, how's this going to make me look to the other designers in my shop or the, you know, uh, the other teachers in my school or whoever it is that is going to be looking at this thing and judging me whether I made a good choice, whether this thing is something that's relevant, whether this thing is cool, whether this thing is uh, smart, whether this thing actually is helping. And that that level of social approval and status is not part of the, the the intellectual process that someone is is making when they look at something new or deciding. It's it's just below the surface at sort of that super ego level, but it's super important. And in the case of Steve Jobs, by sending those social tribal signals to the people that cared very deeply and were very deeply invested in the Macintosh brand and saying, you're going to be the cool kids again. This thing is going to make you and the things that you care about, uh, uh, it's going to give you some social and tribal kind of signals that you can send to other people. It raises your status, but it also, it means you you have those validators to say, I'm, I'm, I'm smart, I'm capable, I made this decision, it's a smart decision, and it's an automatic yes when, you're, when your boss sees that you know, this thing is, is, is there. And then the last one, the fourth category, so we went for comfort to adventure to the uh, sort of tribal benefits or the social, social benefits. Uh, the last one is habit. It's utility, it's accessibility. So it's the more practical part. And if you're framing a, a, a sales pitch like Steve Jobs is, you're saying, this thing does everything you want it to, it's new and cool, uh, your boss is gonna love it and everyone's gonna think you're, 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 you're the coolest kid on the block. The final one is uh, the call to action. What, what do I do to get this thing? Uh, because even if you nail all those other things and the thing's not available now or the thing is so hard to get or it's too expensive or, you know, uh, I have to I have to go to some weird, uh, 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 sketchy dealer to get this thing, all those other things are going to fall apart. So when you're launching something, the key is to make sure that that call to action is immediately uh fulfilled, that the person feels like, I want this thing, I want it now, and you can give them something right away. But over time, this in terms of psychology, in terms of the brain structure, we're going from the cerebellum, which is the tribal part, to the brainstem, which is where habits form, and it's like muscle memory uh, in the brain. Uh, because once somebody gets something quickly and is gratified quickly the first time, uh, they're coming back for more and they, 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 they form that habit. And as a, sounds a little a like friend, social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in positive that, and that, negative that dopamine right? fix, right? Exactly. And, and, and I don't want to mean, I don't want to make it sound like you're brainwashing people because if you're doing this right, you are lining up what you're doing with things that are going to make their lives better. Uh, and helping them realize how they make better. You can do it in a cynical way and you can sell them products that they like. They don't if you're need, selling, but you know, yeah. any good thing or any good practice can be used for good or evil. It's the, the, the thing itself is not the, the problem. It's how people actually deploy it. One of the things that, that the iMac uh, really did well for somebody who was not involved in the tech of it, who was not involved in that sort of world, if you will, the legacy thing that kept coming up was not the tech specs, 
the Bondi mm. blue was nice, but it was a little weird. We're like, okay, it's a computer. I don't know if it's supposed to look. And then tangerine orange and the other colors that they had going, the, yeah. the lollipop green, all of those things that they had going for it um, may not have reached people like me, but the handle on the top Right. Did I feel like that handle may sort of hit all of those areas for people who are outside of the, you know, out of outside of that realm because it's just such a practical good idea. I mean, it met the practical need. It's a heavy computer. It met yeah. the visible need. It just looked good. It looked nice on top of that machine, and it meant right. that you could move it from a table to another table without having to cart that big CPU. So that handle, the utility of that handle. Uh, when it arrives in your office and you pull it out of the box, you realize, I never realized I wanted a handle. But when you're evaluating it, the other big proposition is that rather than having five different things on your desktop, this one thing was going to do it all for you. And it was all there in that unboxing experience. When you opened an iMac, you only had to pull one thing out and and plug in the uh, the, the keyboard and the mouse uh, you didn't have to have a separate CPU. You didn't have to have a separate hard drive. You didn't have to have a separate, you know, all of these different uh, separate monitor. It was all there for you. And that unveiling experience when the new product <laughs> arrived in your office, you know, I saw this. People would gather around and watch one of these things come out of the box. And it was like a magic trick. Well, they still do it with unboxing videos on YouTube. People, and I've done it. Yeah. I haven't taken a video of my unboxing, but I am admittedly an Apple fanboy. Yeah. So every time I get to replace my computer every number of years, the unboxing experience, I really love it. It really, really appeals Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. It's, it, it's always, it has always been a focus of theirs. They spend money and they have user tests to watch people how they unbox the products and what they need to adjust so that that experience fulfills that same sense of, of con reaffirming that you made a good decision, right? When that thing arrives and you pull open the box, it's not just, uh, you know, fishing around in the bottom to find the little pluggy thing that you need to do the thing. It's like, it really is. It's like a magic trick when you open it up and that thing is there for you and it's simple, it's clean. I think that's probably one of the main reasons that I thought about having you on this show mm -hmm. because you take the idea of branding and for lack of a better term, you humanize it. You put the human aspect into it, uh, but not just making it, you know, utility, useful, all of those things. You're thinking not just about what the customer wants. Yeah but what the customer might need as well. And that to me is really, really, really interesting. We can talk about branding from a numbers and economical standpoint, but I think it's really interesting to talk about why people reject ideas or why people accept ideas from that human, that peopleness standpoint. 100%, yeah. And uh, when we talked about doing this uh, this session, we talked about, you know, going through some branding disasters and some launches that were rejected. And I'd love to come back and do that at some point. But um, but the 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 key thing that that marks the difference between a, a success and a failure when you're launching something new is that immediate intuitive connection with your customer. And as a, a launcher, as somebody who's launching something, that means you've got to take your customers very, very, very seriously. You cannot say my way or the highway, you're going to accept this whether you like it or not. Um, 
you need to understand that that person out there is the key to your success. And, and you can't just get, you can't, you can't ignore their comfort feelings of their, their wish for comfort. You can't ignore their wish for, for adventure or tribal status. Like all of those things are really important to the person launching the product. But from a consumer standpoint, uh, those are the things that are going to 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 make it uh, a, a difference between, you know, uh, a, a purchase that you regret or a purchase that you uh, that you feel helped you do something that you want to do anyway in your life. And it made your life better as opposed to just an impulse purchase that you're you're, you're going to regret. And and it's the meeting place. It's it's there's the the, the manufacturer or the, the product developer and there's the customer. And the brand is the thing that exists as an agreement between those people about what uh, both the company's going to say, but what people are going to remember and talk about about the brand. And companies got to get out of their own heads and uh, spend more time talking to customers and understanding the people that they're trying to serve. Uh, Otherwise, uh, the things that they launch are going to be fine for themselves or maybe even for their bottom line but they're not going to help humans get things done and meet their needs. And they're not, they're not going to think different and they're, they're certainly not going to change the world. Well, I am going to ask you, and I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. Can you think of something that did not do those things? Maybe, uh, sure. maybe even one that's not really well known. If you know of one that people could dig into a little bit and hit the Google. This one's very well known, at least if you're as old as we are, uh, but uh, to some of your younger listeners, it uh, it, it may not be uh, as as well known. And uh, I also have a blog post that I wrote about it that I can send you a link to that you can share. Uh, and that's New Coke. So Coke as uh, Coca Cola as a hundred plus year old brand in the 1980s uh, had been doing the same thing for many many years. They had nailed the comfort of their brand, and people were comfortable with Coke as a brand. Uh, they were facing a lot of competition from Pepsi, and Pepsi was starting to eat into their market share, their profit share, and it caused a panic at the Coca-Cola head office. And they decided we're going to go through this product development process, and we're going to develop this thing that is going to, like this new formula, we're going to relaunch Coca-Cola as this new thing that is product tested to uh to beat Pepsi in any taste test challenge head to head. Okay. So they did this uh, and they launched it with great fanfare and they called it new Coke and they had Coke on the thing. And they said, we're the old Coca-Cola is going away. New Coke is here. Ta-da everybody. And while they did product test it and they did go out and they did blind taste test versus Pepsi. And people said, this tastes better. What they didn't do was they didn't uh, test whether or not people would accept it because the old taste, whether or not it technically tasted better, was the taste people had grown up with and that they were comfortable with. So they tried to take people all the way into Adventureland without recognizing that there were all these tribal and uh, cultural and uh, uh, uh you know, historical associations with that old taste. And when they tasted the new thing, they said, well, this tastes fine, but it's not Coke. I want my Coke back. And then over time they had to pull that back. They had to launch 
Coke Classic, which existed for a little while. And then there just be, became one Coke, which was the the, the, the standard Coke. Um, so it was it was a case where a company said, we're trying to uh, we're trying to address a strategic challenge by doing something brand new. But they didn't respect the people and the emotions and the the kind of culture of their product enough. And they showed that it was really the customers who owned their brand and the and those associations, and that it was at their peril that they could try to 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 just push a new change uh, down the pipeline. And yeah, hmm. it uh, it's a classic marketing study, but um, it's I ran into that over and over and over again in my branding practice where people, uh, we're either launching something new and they just resisted the urge to 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 use an existing category. They want to be like blue ocean. It's and that's where they're going too far towards the adventure side. Uh, or they're they're just boring. They're going towards the comfort side and they're trying to make something that looks like everybody else without threading that needle. And and yeah, you've you've got to you've got to understand that whole psychology if you're gonna really get that the 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 brain activated and get customers to say, this this builds on this builds on how I see the universe. It gives me something new, and uh, it, it it now Coke is sugar water, so it's not going to make anybody's life better. <laughs> as 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 a fa- as a matter of fact, it'll probably quantifiably make their life worse if they drink too much of it. But uh, uh, certainly emotionally and culturally, uh, people have a lot of affection for things like that. Well, I want to thank you, Dennis, for providing what will hopefully be a good unboxing experience uh, of your ideas about branding and why people reject ideas or accept ideas. Um, where can people find you online or anywhere for that matter? Yeah, um, I, I am available online uh, on all platforms as uh, Denvan, D-E-N-V-A-N. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or on uh, Twitter, which I refuse to call X. We'll get into that at some point if you <laughs> like. Uh, but uh, they can also go to uh, beg to differ differcom is uh, my blog. And if they want to get uh, in touch with me to hire me as a consultant or to uh, bat around some ideas, uh, they can find my contact information there as well. A massive thank you to Dennis for being here and sharing some of his wisdom and insights with us. I'll make sure to post the stuff he referred to in the podcast, and he's going to send me some other information as well. I'll get those into the show notes. As always, you can reach out and uh, send us your stories. We would love to hear from you. Reach out through the website, rejectedcentral.com, email at rejectedcentral8 at gmail.com, or through social media. And again, we don't need to have you on the show. We can, we'd love to, but uh, we can just read your story out loud. You can use fake names. The best is when people are in studio with us or on Zoom. So yeah, you can be on the show as well. We're looking forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next time.